0: Believers need not be discouraged by the seeming prosperity of false teachers. As Jude demonstrated in verses 5 through 7 of his epistle, God's judgment against false teachers is indeed certain. Since God judged the wicked throughout history, he most certainly will judge them in the future. Jude has already stated that the false teachers were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Jude verse 4. The reason they are already doomed to judgment is that they are ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Again, Jude verse 4. If there is any doubt that the false teachers are doomed to God's judgment, Jude provided three more charges against the false teachers in Jude 8 to 10. They defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they revile angelic majesties. This is the fifth triad in the epistle of Jude. In verse 1, we had three actions of God, called, loved, kept. In verse 2, we had three blessings on saints, mercy, peace, and love. In verse 4, we had three charges against false teachers, crept in unaware, turned to grace and licentiousness, and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. In verses 5 through 7, we have three examples of judgment, Israel in the wilderness, the fallen angels in Genesis 6, and Sodom and Gomorrah. And now here in verse 8, we have three more charges against false teachers. Defile the flesh, reject authority, revile angelic authority. Now before examining the specific charges against the false teachers, Jude makes a significant statement in verse 8. Yet in the same way, these men, also by dreaming, defile the flesh and reject authority, and revile angelic majesties. Now, that phrase there, in the same way, homilus, implies something that resembles another thing. In other words, Jude says that these men, the false teachers, are going to be judged for the same sins as those individuals judged in Jude 5 through 7. And the connecting tissue between the three charges against the false teachers and the preceding individuals, is significant. Consider the Israelites in the wilderness. They were guilty of one of these sins. That is, they rejected authority by rebelling against God's rule. Now, the angels in Genesis 6 were guilty of two of these sins. First, they defiled the flesh by engaging in interspecies sexual relations. And second, they rejected authority by rebelling against God. The people of Sodom and Gomorrah, however, were guilty of all three sins. First, they defiled the flesh by engaging in homoerotic behavior. Second, they rejected authority by refusing to obey the mores of society that God had established. And third, they reviled angelic majesties by trying to engage in sexual relationships with the angels in Lot's care. Now, by understanding the connective tissue... It explains why Jude did not follow a chronological order with his historical examples of God's judgment. Instead, Jude's examples build towards a crescendo of sin, from one charge to all three charges. Jude next states that these false teachers commit the sins they are charged with by dreaming, by dreaming, Now, the verb by dreaming is only used one other time in the New Testament. And that's in uh, Acts chapter 2 and verse 17. Now, the context of Acts 2.17 is Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. He's quoting from Joel 2.28, and he says in Acts 2.17, And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my Spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy... And your young men shall see visions, and your old men dream dreams. That word dream is the same as dreaming here in Jude. Now Peter quotes from Joel 2.28 to show that the events unfolding on Pentecost were a fulfillment of prophecy. Namely, the Holy Spirit had come and was now permanently indwelling believers. And God was resuming the giving of revelation. The term visions and dreams denotes two means God used to reveal his word and will to humanity. Now, dreams were usually suitable for individuals with little or no spiritual discernment. In the case of dreams, the individual was in a passive state, such as sleep, and their personality was rendered inert. Visions were usually more suitable for the spiritually mature, such as prophets. And in the case of visions, the individual was actively involved. They were acting, moving, talking, interacting with the object of the vision. So, these false teachers were classifying themselves as dreamers and claiming to have divine revelation to support their sinful desires and lifestyles. Believer, we need to beware Just because someone claims to have a revelation does not validate the revelation. No doubt by calling the false teachers out on their dreaming, Jude is not merely mocking them, but he's condemning them. See, almost 2,000 years before Jude wrote these words, God revealed three specific statements regarding false prophets or dreamers in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 to 5. If a prophet or dreamer arises among you, and gives you a sign or wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true, concerning which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear him, and you shall keep his commandments, listen to his voice, serve him, and cling to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery to seduce you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from among you. And so we see there's three specific statements here. One, if the false prophets or dreamers direct people to follow after anyone other than God, they are to be rejected. Deuteronomy 13, 2 and 3. Two, if the false prophets or dreamers counsel people to rebel against Yahweh, they are to be rejected. Deuteronomy 13, 5. And three... If the false prophets or dreamers attempt to seduce people from walking in the way of the Lord, they are to be rejected. You see, these false prophets or dreamers are under the penalty of eternal damnation. And furthermore, believer, we are to purge false prophets or dreamers from the church. Paul directly quotes this admonition in 1 Corinthians 5.13. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. He's directly quoting Deuteronomy 13, verse 5. Now, how are believers to determine? How are we to determine who is a false teacher? Well, Jude's already laid out three charges. As we contend earnestly for biblical orthodoxy, we need to be on the lookout, believer, for those who attempt to creep into the church unnoticed, who turn God's grace into licentiousness, and who deny the only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. And now to those three charges, Jude now adds to be on the lookout for those who defile the flesh, reject authority, and revile angelic majesties. And so in Jude verses 8 to 10, we have more charges against false teachers. More charges against false teachers. Now, as we lay these out, we're going to lay them out as charge 4, 5, and 6. Charge 1, we've covered. That was, they crept in unaware. Charge 2, turn God's grace and licentiousness. Charge 3, deny the only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So let's begin with charge 4. They defile the flesh. Verse 8, first part of verse 8, defile the flesh. So the fourth charge against false teachers is that they defile the flesh. Now, the verb defile... Miano refers to being morally corrupted or contaminated. The Septuagint uses this Greek term, miano, to translate the Hebrew term teme, translated as defile. Now in the law, God warned his people against defiling themselves with immorality. Specifically, the Hebrew term was associated with those actions considered sexually impure or abominations. Leviticus eighteen twenty-three and 27 to 29. Do not defile yourselves by any of these things. For by all these, the nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled. For the men of the land who have been before you have done all these abominations, and the land has become defiled, so that the land will not spew you out should you defile it, it has as it has spewed out the nation that has been before you. For whoever does any of these abominations, those person who do so will be cut off from among their people. Now, what are those actions viewed as abominable? Well, if we were to take the time to go through Leviticus eighteen, God specifically says those actions that are abominable or that defile are incest. Extramarital affairs, i.e. adultery, pedophilia, homosexuality, and bestiality. And so these false teachers, claiming divine permission, were engaging in such immoralities as incest, adultery, pedophilia, homosexuality, and bestiality. And Peter previously warned believers to beware of the false teacher's sensuality. In 2 Peter two two. many will follow their sensuality. Now the word sensuality, aselgia, refers to a lack of restraint and indulging in all kinds of evil and moral impurity. The terms in the plural indicating that there's multiple acts of evil and moral impurity. In other words, such a person, these false teachers, have no shame or restraint. And sensuality, or moral impurity, is the hallmark of those who cast off God's law, such as the antinomian Gnostics. And it is such moral impurity that attracts many to these false teachers. Now, Peter was very specific in Second 2 Peter 2.14, when he stated that false teachers have eyes full of adultery, that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls and having a heart trained in greed, accursed children. Notice that they have eyes full of adultery. Now the word adultery there is feminine and denotes an adulteress. William Arndt translates the text this way, eyes that are full of desire for an adulteress, that is, they are always looking for a woman with whom they commit adultery. In other words, false teachers lust after every woman, they see as a potential sexual conquest. In their view, a woman is nothing more than a thing to be used to fulfill their desire. And furthermore, their eyes never cease from sin. That is, their lusts are never satisfied. They move from one victim to the next victim. And not only do they engage in sexual promiscuity... But according to 2 Peter 2.14, they are enticing unstable souls to do the same. That verb enticing, diolosio, means to set a trap. In, In the context, it means to lure or seduce someone into sin. Unstable refers to someone or something that lacks stability or firmness. In this case, unstable refers to immature believers who lack doctrinal stability. And as such, they are easy prey for false teachers who entice them to engage in promiscuous and sensual behaviors without any fear of judgment. Now, when Peter said that their hearts were trained in greed, he implies that false teachers exercise their hearts in excessive and immoderate desires. And by connecting the term greed with adultery, Peter insinuated that their excessive and immoderate desires are not merely for material objects, but every type of promiscuity and sexual deviancy. And as such, Peter states that false teachers are accursed children, or literally children of the cursed. You see, to be accursed, katara, is to be liable to the penalties contained in a curse. Specifically... Peter has in mind the curse of death that God placed on false teachers in Deuteronomy 13:5. That prophet or dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God. And while physical death was in view, it pointed towards that future judgment that resulted in the or results in the second death, i.e. eternal separation from God in the lake of fire. And so the one one way in which to determine if someone's a false teacher is are they defiling the flesh if they're engaging in one of the sins of Leviticus 18 i.e. incest, adultery, pedophilia homosexuality, bestiality then you may be dealing with a false teacher now the charge number 5 they reject authority verse 8 part B and reject authority so, Jude's fifth charge against these false teachers is that they reject authority. Now, the term authority here, curates, is a singular person noun. Now, the singular usage of curates, authority, never refers to human or angelic authority in the New Testament or in the Septuagint. The use of curates in the Didache, A.D. Ninety to one hundred, and the shepherd of Hermas or pastor of Hermas, AD one hundred and sixty, sheds light on whose authority Jude has in mind. In Didache four one, it states, "For in the place the lordship is spoken of, there is the Lord." Now the term lordship in Didache four one translates the singular form of curates and specifically refers to Christ authority. In the Shepherd of Hermas or Pastor of Hermas, Similitude 561, it states, You see, he said that he is the Lord of the people, having received all authority from his Father. Here, the term authority translates the singular usage of curates and is directly applied again to Christ's lordship. Hence, we can state with confidence that Jude's charge of rejecting authority refers to the rejection of Christ's lordship or authority. Now, both Jude and Peter have previously stated that the false teachers deny Christ's authority. In Jude 4, Jude stated that the false teachers deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. In 2 Peter 2.1, Peter stated that they are denying the master who brought them. The verb deny, arneomai, means to refuse to recognize or acknowledge. That is, the false teachers deny Christ's authority. They refuse to recognize or acknowledge his authority. To deny Christ's lordship or authority is a theological denial. See, it denies his deity. However... Not only do they deny Christ's lordship or authority, Jude now states that they reject it. And the verb reject, atheteo, means to reject something with contempt. Hence, Jude is charging these false teachers with a rejection of Christ's lordship or authority. And such rejection should be considered a practical denial. That is, they want to be free from Christ's authority. They want to be an authority without being under any authority. And that is, without any accountability. And believer, I got word, I got news for you. Any authority without accountability will always produce disastrous results. Now, again, notice what we have here. The rejection is seasoned with contempt. That is, they utterly scorn Christ and his authority. Peter made a similar charge against the false teachers in 2 Peter 2.10. He stated there that they indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. And the verb despise there, kataphroneo, means to express hate through ridicule and contempt. Hence, these false teachers both deny and scorn Christ's lordship. As well, when someone rejects Christ's authority, they believe themselves to be free from his law and thus free to live as they please. Psalm twelve four, Who have said, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are our own, who is Lord over us. Sadly, they do not realize that those laws which they ignore have penalties and consequences attached. As Paul said in Galatians 6, 7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Now again, we're talking about false teachers. But believer, you need to examine yourself. Maybe you've never come out and verbalized that you reject Christ's authority or his lordship. But if you're disobeying his law, you're practically rejecting or denying his lordship. And if that's the case, my friend, you need to repent of that. You need to confess and forsake that. Because if you love him, you'll obey his commands. Now, the sixth charge, charge number six, they revile angelic majesties. This is going to take us from the end of verse 8 through verse 10. And revile angelic majesties. But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand, and the things which they, do, which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. So Jude's sixth charge against false teachers is that they revile angelic majesties. The verb revile translates the Greek verb blasphemeo. It means to speak irreverently or arrogantly in a manner that blasphemes or hurts the reputation of someone or something. In particular, they blaspheme angelic majesties. Doxa. Now, the plural form of the Greek term doxa, typically translated as glory, here refers to angelic majesties. Peter also used the term doxa to refer to angels in 2 Peter 2.10. They revile angelic majesties. The Septuagint translates the term gods in Exodus 15.11, who is like you among the gods O Lord, with the Greek term doxa. Hence the translators there understood the verse to mean that Yahweh was distinct and greater than angelic beings. As well, using doxa to refer to angels is found in several Dead Sea Scrolls. And Jewish literature. And it's important to note that in each of these usages, the term doxa always refers to holy angels and never fallen angels. And so these false teachers are arrogantly slandering holy angels. Now, what does that mean? Well, there's a few interpretations behind their slander. One, false teachers mock the idea that their immorality made them easy prey for demonic forces. Two: they slandered angels by belittling them for being judged by Christians. 1 Corinthians 6:3. Do you not know that we will judge angels? Three, the false teachers ridiculed the angels because of their role on the day of judgment. Matthew 16:27, "For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to their deeds." And four, it's also plausible that the false teachers criticized the angels' role in revealing God's law to humanity. Acts 7.53, you who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Galatians 3.19, why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator. Hebrews 2.2, 2, for if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable see, criticizing the angel's role in God's revealing of his law would fit the spirit of the antinomian Gnostics who were inflicting themselves on the scattered, slandered saints to whom Peter and Jude wrote. That said, I believe all four views are likely in play. Now, in slandering angels, the false teachers demonstrated the truthfulness of the old adage, fools rush in where angels fear to tread. And to underscore their folly of slandering angels, Jude provides an example from the pseudographical text, the Assumption of Moses, in verse 9. Now Jude's reference to the Assumption of Moses does not make it a divinely inspired text. It does validate, however, that it is a divinely approved historical record. Now, the Assumption of Moses discloses discloses a dispute between Michael the archangel and Satan over the body of Moses. It states, quote, Joshua accompanied Moses up Mount Nebo, where God showed Moses the land of promise. Moses then sent Joshua back to the people to inform them of Moses' death, and Moses died. God sent the archangel Michael to remove the body of Moses to another place and bury it there. But the devil opposed him, disputing Moses' right to, to honorable burial. The devil brought again Moses against Moses a charge of murder because he smote the Egyptian and hid his body in the sand. But this accusation was not better than slander against Moses, and Michael, not tolerating the slander, said to the devil, May the Lord rebuke you, devil. At that the devil took flight, and Michael removed the body to the place God commanded, where he buried it with his own hands. Thus no one saw the burial of Moses. Now Jude notes here that Michael was an archangel. An archangel is an angel of rank or importance. Daniel referred to Michael as the great prince, the Hasar Hagadal, designating him as the chief or ruler amongst the angels. Daniel 12.1 Now at that time, Michael, the great prince, who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. As the great prince, he is the protector or guardian of Israel. The apostle John reveals that Michael the archangel leads the war against Satan and the demons. Revelation 12:7 There was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. Now, Jewish writings tell us that there are seven archangels, and while the scripture only names Michael, John states that there are indeed seven angels who stand before God. Revelation 8.2 I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. Now, in Jude 9, the verb disputed and argued, Diacrino and dialegomai, suggest a legal dispute between Michael and Satan over the body of Moses. Jude refers to Satan as the devil, the whole diabolos, or the slanderer, as a reference to his role in blaspheming God and falsely accusing God's people. The term devil, diabolos, appears 22 times in the Septuagint, translating the Hebrew term for Satan, Hasatan. Now, after Yahweh dispatched Michael to bury the body of Moses, Satan appeared and laid claim to the body. Now, it must be understood that Satan did, did have a degree of authority in the realm of death. Hebrews two, fourteen and fifteen. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that is, that through death he might render powerless him who has the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Now, while his authority is stolen authority, Satan nonetheless believed himself justified to interfere. No doubt he slandered Moses, bringing up Moses' execution of the Egyptian. His goal was to rob Moses of an honorable burial and force the Jews to hold Moses in contempt. Despite that, Satan is the evil one. Despite that, his motives are evil. Michael, the ruler of angels, did not dare pronounce a railing judgment against him. Now that verb railing translates the Greek term blasphemia, which is the noun form of blasphemio, translated as reviling back in verse 8. Despite being the ruler of angels, Michael did not dare, uh, or literally, did not have the courage to blaspheme or slander Satan in response. Instead of blaspheming the devil, Michael said, The Lord rebuke you. Now, Michael's response is an allusion to Zechariah 3.2. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord, Yahweh, rebuke you, Satan. See, in the context of Zechariah 3, Satan appeared before Yahweh and attempted to slander Joshua the high priest and accuse him of sin. Without a doubt, Joshua was a sinner. As noted by Zechariah 3.3, Joshua was clothed in filthy garments. Yahweh responds, though, by instead Announcing judgment upon Satan. And it's worth noting as well, besides judging Satan, Yahweh declared Joshua forgiven and vindicated in Zechariah 3.4. I have taken your iniquity away from you. So when Michael stated to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, he not only affirmed that Satan himself was judged by Yahweh, but that Moses had been forgiven and vindicated by Yahweh and as such deserved an honorable burial. Now, it's so, so important to us, believer, because he is, Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He is constantly going before God to accuse us. And indeed, we are sinners. But how wonderful to know that when Satan accuses us, our great high priest stands and there and rebukes him and vindicates us as forgiven. Now, in the same charge against false teachers, Peter used a different example in 2 Peter 2.11. He stated that the holy angels, who are greater in might and power, do not bring a reviling judgment against fallen angels. Peter noted that the holy angels were greater in might and power than humanity. That is, compared to humanity, angels are mentally and physically superior. And as such, they have greater authority than we do. Nevertheless, holy angels do not bring a reviling judgment against fallen angels. His Peter statement there references 1 Enoch 9, which records the holy angels' response to the wickedness and lawlessness created by the fallen angels cohabitating with human women. Instead of intervening or rebuking the fallen angels, the holy angels took the issue to Yahweh. Peter used the same term as Jude, reviling blasphemas. Both Jude and Peter deliberately chose this term to contrast the holy angels to the false teachers. If beings in greater in strength and authority than false teachers will not pass judgment upon fallen angels or even blaspheme them, then why, do holy, then why do false teachers think they can slander holy angels? Simply stated, false teachers are arrogant and as such lack common sense. They believe themselves to be superior to angels and do not hesitate to slander beings that are more powerful and authoritative than them. Returning to the charge against false teachers, Jude states, that these men revile things which they do not understand. That term understand there what, means to comprehend something. Peter drew a similar uh, conclusion in Second 2 Peter 2.12, reviling where they have no knowledge. In other words, these false teachers, slander against angels is not based upon facts or knowledge. They're speaking out of term and without facts. Thomas Reiner states that these false teachers displayed their foolishness in criticizing what they did not comprehend. And I believe there is uh, a warning here for us as believers that we need to learn not to speak on, out on something without all the knowledge and all the facts. Do not be, do not be viewed as foolish. Because you're criticizing that which you don't comprehend or that which you don't have all the facts on. Now, these false teachers are bereft of any spiritual comprehension and are therefore un- unable to understand spiritual truths. First Corinthians 2.14 A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. See, though they do not understand heavenly things, such as angels... Jude states that there are things which they know by instinct. And that term instinct, fusakas, refers to that which is according to one's nature. See, Jude as well as Peter clarifies the false teacher's nature by stating that they are unreasoning animals. The term unreasoning, alogos, means lacking rationale. Animals are creatures of instinct. That is, their ability to rationalize or reason is greatly limited. And like, fa- like animals, false teachers do not behave rationally. Instead, their decisions are based on feelings and emotions. And scripture warns that decisions based upon emotions, desires, or feelings are dangerous, even deadly, because the heart, the source of emotions, desires, and feelings, is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Jeremiah 17.9 because of these things behaving like animals and acting according to their sensual desires, false teachers are destroyed. Peter made the same point in 2 Peter 2.12. He noted that animals are destined to be captured and killed. Peter referenced the role of animals in a post-diluvian world. In Genesis 9.3, God said, Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. The point is that animals have a divinely appointed end. And as such, so do the false teachers. Like animals that are destined to destruction, so false teachers will be destroyed. And the verb be destroyed, (phthario) means to punish or bring to a worse state. See, animals die and decay, but false teachers will be, then go on to a worse state. That is, eternal torment in a lake of fire. So having given three examples of the certainty of God's judgment, Jude gave three more charges against the false teachers, which guarantees that their judgment is certain. Jude repeats or parallels, however, much of what Peter said in 2 Peter 2. Why is such repetition necessary? The answer is found in Philippians 3.1. To write the same things again is no trouble to me and is a safeguard for you. See, parents and teachers know that warnings and instructions need to be repeated to protect and benefit their children and students. So too spiritual parents and teachers must continue to repeat scriptural warnings and teachings to their spiritual children. Sadly, in spite of the evidence for God's judgment, false teachers are unwilling to listen and repent. Instead, they purport the notion that God has revealed to them that they can defile the flesh, reject authority, and revile angelic majesties. And without a doubt, these false teachers are still prevalent today. Believer, you and I must beware of their dissipation and depravity false teachers defile the flesh by engaging in sexual immorality and and embracing a changing morality. And one example of this is the approval from various denominations and churches of homosexuality and other forms of homoeroticism, calling it an alternative lifestyle, and going as far as ordaining homosexual ministers and performing homosexual unions. Now before moving on, I I think it's necessary for me to speak briefly to this issue of homosexuality. The Bible wholly condemns homosexuality. From the beginning, God intended for the union of marriage to be one man, one woman. Though homosexuality is condemned, God does offer forgiveness to all who will repent. And as well, God's grace and mercy can provide them with the means of resisting urges to engage in homoerotic behavior. However, we need to understand that just because someone becomes a Christian does not mean they're no longer going to struggle with their fleshly desires. And as such, some of those who are saved out of homosexuality may continue to struggle with those desires. The church needs to be a safe haven of forgiveness and healing for them without compromising biblical standards. Now, returning to the false teacher, they also reject authority by downplaying or even disregarding Christ's lordship, particularly in the realm of salvation. And a gospel devoid of Christ's lordship is another gospel. Romans 10.9 is clear. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. See, salvation is not just believing that Jesus is the Savior, it's submitting to Him, confessing Him as Lord. And that submission to His Lordships comes only from the Holy Spirit. And it's proof that the Holy Spirit resides in the believer. See, by confessing that Jesus is Lord, one is committing themselves to obeying Him. Luke 6.46 Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not what I say? See, a false teacher may call Jesus their Lord, but if they do not obey his commands, he is not their Lord. Now, believer, we must recover the lordship of Jesus because it is an anesthetic towards legalism. See, when we focus on obeying all the God commands, as Matthew 28, 19, and 20 tells us, teach them to observe all that I commanded you, then we're going to have no time to make up man-made rules or hold people accountable to such drivel and nonsense. See, false teachers love to make up rules and hold people accountable to such drivel. However, there's no need to create rules and regulations and add them to the rules and regulations which God ordained. Instead, we need people to be taught that the lordship of Christ should be their guide. Because He is Lord, He determines what is lawful and unlawful, what is permissible and impermissible. And finally, false teachers revile angelic authorities by rejecting God's law. Now remember, God used the holy angels to deliver his law to Moses at Sinai. As well, they are the guardians of his law. Psalm 68, 17. The chariots of God are myriads. Thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them as at Sinai in holiness. Now David reveals in Psalm 68, 17 that when the Lord gave his law in Sinai, the angels were not only there as messengers, but guardians. The term chariots denotes that the angels showed up as an army. See, angels guard God's holiness, and because God is holy, they guard that as well. They guard his law. Thus, those who promote antinomianism or lawlessness, and the idea that God's law has been set aside, are blaspheming the very angels that gave it and continue to guard it. And so, believer, beware. When you thumb your nose at God's law, when you just ignore God's law, abandon God's law, disregard God's law, disobey God's law, you too may be guilty of blaspheming the very angels he has appointed to guard it. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, Lord, we come before you. And Lord, as we look at this text, the three more charges against these false teachers. Father, without a doubt you're very concerned for our well-being. Lord, you go to such lengths to not only tell us about false teachers, not only remind us of their judgment, but now, Father, to get very specific in identifying them. Uh, as As our Father, you're trying to protect us, you're guarding us, you're trying to keep us from these evil people. And so, Father, I pray that we would heed your word, that we would open our eyes, that we might examine Uh, such individuals uh, for what they are. Uh, Lord, not so that we're we're trying to be judgmental. Rather, Lord, we're simply trying to judge rightly, as the Bible says. And so, Father, with your Spirit, guide and direct us to that end. Keep us from these things, Father. While the majority of us, Lord, would never even think ourselves to be a false teacher, uh, it's quite possible, Father, that we might engage in some of these things and so father as we examine ourselves if we should find ourselves engaged in any of these activities that lord we immediately would confess it forsake it and turn back to you and that father you may rescue us from this and so lord i thank you for your word i thank you lord that uh for uh, the giving of your law i thank you that uh, father you gave it to us so that we know what sin is but also so that we would know who Christ is and that we would know what holiness is. And I thank you, Father, uh, that Lord, uh, uh, for Christ, who is our Lord. That, Father God, we we have a Lord, a sovereign one, a ruler over us, who is not unkind. uh, He's not unjust. uh, He's the king of peace. He's the king of righteousness. And anything that he requires, Father, is always for our good. And so I pray, Lord, that as we surrender to his lordship, as we submit ourselves to him, that, Father, uh, we would always be examining to make sure that we're not disregarding his commands, disregarding his law. But instead, by obeying it, we might demonstrate that we love him. We pray this in your son's precious and holy name. Amen.